right, Dave. It's time to talk about Canada and the world. Feels odd, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, I think. Uh, how do you do it? And when you when you taught it, did you do a a day about Canada, or what did you do? What in Mod West? Yeah. Oh, I would just remind people of what they studied in grade ten. Hmm. So if you're if you're not Canadian, uh, Canadian high school students are required to take one history course in their academic career, and that's grade 10 Canadian history. Many of them have discovered a really clever way around this. They take it in summer school and get it over with in a matter of weeks. <laughs> because, of course, they've heard that it's boring, and also, who needs it, right? Got to free up more time for more maths and sciences. So I don't deal with it in modern West much, except for uh, the question of uh, devolution, which would be the second point that I would make. And uh, maybe if, if the students want to talk about it, we could discuss Canada's role as a middle power. Right. In the... Oh, in the great power kind of scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we're g- I, I have conceived of two episodes... One where we do, you know, the events, some chronology, some stuff you need to know about how to fit Canada into the world. And then another one where we do like a colonial determinist's view of Canada. <laughs> so, uh, okay. well, uh, yeah, I would approach it differently, though. The first okay. part, anyway. Uh, I don't think necessarily people around the world need to know anything about Canada. <laughs> you know, with, with apologies to many countries around the world, I don't know a great deal about their history. I don't see why. Right. Like Australia or New Zealand. I don't know much about those countries. It would be a very comparable example, right? No, I know a little about, about that. I don't, <laughs> want, I don't want to name the poor countries that I'm ignorant right. of and make them feel bad. But don't feel bad if you don't know much about Canada. We're not necessarily that important. On the other hand... In some ways, we are, and I think that is because, rightly or wrongly, we consider ourselves something of a role model for other countries. Mm. (laughs) I know we're supposed to be polite and all that stuff, but Canadians actually have a fairly uh, positive self-esteem going on. Part of it is based on us not being American. And it's, uh, yeah, and it's also based on not knowing <laughs> a lot of these things, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, basically, as a, a role model for other countries, it's based on uh, several real things. One of them is that despite being uh, a bilingual, bicultural country, at, at bare minimum, uh, you can say multicultural, but, you know, we, we began anyway as a multi-ethnic state, we haven't had a major civil war or a major ethnic conflict between those races. Now, that's leaving out, (laughs) for the moment, uh, our relationship with the Indigenous people, which we'll definitely get to later. But if you're a country like Belgium Mm -hmm. uh, or any other state with, you know, multiple major ethnic groups... Switzerland, I guess... (laughs) Uh, Italy, Italy? Does Italy have? No. Well, Italy has a lot of north-south uh, yeah. troubles, but that's not ethnic, I don't right. think, to the same degree. Czech, the former Czechoslovakia. 
Yeah, actually, the, they got along reasonably well and split amicably. Norway but, didn't Norway split from uh, Sweden? Sweden? Yeah, yeah, through a referendum. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, the second reason why some countries consider us uh, a role model, or or why we think we're a role model, is that we're the first country to get our independence without a violent revolution. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's the same. right. Ra- John Ralston Saul talks about uh, you talking your way out of an empire or something like that. <laughs> that's one way to put it. And yeah. the third point would be uh, the waves of immigrants that have come and you know changed the nature of the country very significantly. And uh, the immigration policy that brought many of them in was called the open door, which you mm-hmm. know bears a little examination, but I you know. Compared to some countries, Canadians like to think that we're very open-minded about accepting immigrants and refugees. Whether that's true or not deserves a little more scrutiny. Yeah, but I'll start with the first one. So Canada is essentially, in our early history, considering itself a French and English issue. Um, Except for uh, October of 1970, the FLQ crisis when a small group of violent separatists uh, kidnapped a couple of British officials and, and a, a British official and a Quebec provincial politician. That's the closest we've gotten to violent, ethnic violence. Uh, even then, the end result of that crisis was to throw violent methods into disrepute. Separatists basically disavowed violence as a way of achieving their aims. And many countries around the world know that we've had two referenda in Quebec on separation in 1980 and in 1995. Uh, in 1980, 40% voted f- to separate from Canada. And in 1995, 49.3, I think, percent voted to separate, which is pretty damn close. But other countries have had the same sort of thing. Uh, Scotland recently, and to, to Catalonia, I think they had one unauthorized, and then they put the they're like they've arrested Spain, arrested some of the Catalonian politicians. Yeah, and if you think of the Spanish civil wars, plural, uh, Catalonia and you know the center Castile yeah. always seem to end up on opposite sides, and it's pretty violent and pretty nasty, and we really haven't had that. But I, in my opinion, and at least the way that I would teach it, the, the presence of a significant French-Canadian uh, group of people in Canada seriously messed up British plans and, and significantly affected the way Canada turned out, our, our political and cultural development. I would argue in a good way um, in many ways. That, that's mm-hmm. not to say that I agree with everything Quebec has done as a province, and certainly not their treatment of indigenous people. That's a completely different issue. I just mean Quebec's role in, as a French minority in an English-speaking country has been beneficial for us in many, many ways. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think you see that when you compare to the rest of the you know, so-called Anglosphere, right? Whether it's the U.S. or... Australia or Britain itself okay. or Australia's yeah. immigration policies have been uh, criticized and, and justly so for being yeah. rather benighted. 
Yeah. Anyway, a quick a quick history. But that's what I mean. I, I just mean like I think some of the social policy and some of the um some of the thing some of the ways that Canada is has better, you know, a better social um welfare state has something to do with the presence of you know Quebec. Yes. Uh, and, and, and something and of our multiculturalism culture. basically began because of bilingualism, which was kind of forced on on yeah. the British and the Canadian government. It's not something they intended. Yeah. It just happened uh, to work out that way. Yeah. So when they first conquered New France in uh, 1759 and got control of it in 1763 by a, a peace treaty with France, the British immediately made a royal proclamation letting the, we'll call them French Canadians because that's what they will become, uh, telling the French Canadians, you are now British subjects. Uh, the King of England is, you know, your ruler and get used to it. And um, for your own good, it's probably best that you learn English and convert to Protestantism as soon as possible because, you know, French and Catholic is not a good thing for you. <laughs> Uh, yeah so it was not possible to enforce this proclamation because there were 70,000 French-speaking Catholic settlers in in the area and there were only a handful of British soldiers and merchants so even had they wanted to the French Canadians really weren't in a position to learn English Um, let me just uh, signpost so I'm gonna I'm gonna just insert every once in a while into your chronology um, a a note uh, that I'm gonna come back to so so the royal proclamation for example is a big deal for indigenous people um, because it's that that's actually it sets a a series of precedents in terms of treating uh, First Nations as nations and dealing with uh, them on a nation-to-nation basis which is what uh, First Nations continue to look to, um, and a lot of the 19th century stuff, like the Indian Act, uh, we they want, and I, you know, like we want to get rid of that uh, and go back to this as the basis for um, for the relationship. Uh, and then this is also the start of the so-called Upper Canada Treaties, uh, where um, First Nations are treating with, uh, I guess, the Crown. Um, and these treaties, unlike um, Later treaties uh, do involve a degree of what's so-called land surrender, where a lot of the agricultural land is um, formally kind of given to the crown, which a lo- uh, most most of the land surrenders were not real surrenders. But uh, I think um, some of the sources I've just been reading argue that there have been some land surrenders uh, in Upper Canada, at least. Yeah. So, And we've touched on some of these treaties with respect to uh, the American Revolution, yeah, <laughs> how the Americans uh, started their revolution because of this proclamation, yeah. uh, which they felt restricted their right to go and take Native people's lands. Yeah. yeah. Uh, British policy towards the French changed very quickly because of the uh, approach of that American revolution. They could sense the unrest in the American colonies. They were having trouble. And the Americans reached out to the French Canadians and said, hey, join us. You know, the more the merrier, and we can put real pressure on Britain. Right, and France was a big ally of the American Revolution, so yeah, that would have been a... They weren't interested in Quebec, so that's really significant. It's it's like the moment France surrendered their colony to the British, they absolutely ceased caring about it at all. There was no plan to get it back, no interest. They could care less. As Voltaire said at the time, 
What's, few acres of snow. <laughs> yeah, what's two crats? Quelques arpents de neige, you know, it doesn't matter. But, but why? There were, you, you're saying there are 90,000 people there? Uh, 70,000 in 1763, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big population to just blow off, isn't it? Yeah, Back but the trade was not as powerful in the St. Lawrence uh, area anymore. And, and they were worried about uh, keeping the Caribbean, the Haiti. Well, yeah. plus every damn war that starts in Europe, the Americans and British go and attack Quebec and France right. has to defend it. It's a millstone, right. you know, right. Let's get rid of it. Okay. Anyway, the point is that Quebec was uh, uh, receiving overtures from the Americans, which, to be quite honest, they were not interested in. They weren't stupid. Yeah, sure, we're going to join you guys. What language are we going to speak? And, and what- right, the British want to assimilate you, right? I mean, yeah, imagine so the Americans are well, English, obviously, and Protestant, of course. You'll have to drop that papist garbage, you know, so... Quebec said, ah, thank you very much, but uh, I don't think so. So the British made them uh, an appeal to keep them, if not, you know, loyal, at least neutral. And that's the Quebec Act of 1774. The date is significant. It's definitely uh, in this American Revolution ballpark. So they promised uh, the French Canadians uh, freedom of religion and freedom to speak their language, which is a a, a complete shift from assimilation so quebec thought well that's very nice so we get that and what do we have to do nothing all right we accept once the american revolution was over though things changed again very quickly for one thing the american colonies were gone and for another a significant number of english-speaking protestant loyalists had moved into canada Uh, some of them came into Uh, the eastern townships of Quebec, some of them came into New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, but a large number settled in southern Ontario. And all of a sudden, you had a much larger number of English-speaking Protestants in Canada, which made the British review their policy, and they decided, yeah, that changes things. So in 1791, they issued the Constitutional Act, and that's basically a return to assimilation. You Frenchies start learning English, and uh, switch to Protestant if you want to get ahead. Well, I, I don't think French Canadians were all that surprised, but it's still uh, well, a little bit annoying if you had any hopes of progress. They were quickly dashed. Um, I see you're right. Not- and also politically, it's like um, it's like uh, the betray, you know. The, the agreement capability of this <laughs> government, right? Like they'll they'll promise you something, oh, and then yeah. well, we know. covered we covered this in early in our first few episodes when when kings and and governments sign a treaty, they're yeah. looking at the benefits of the treaty. The obligations yeah. we're not even yeah. <laughs> we're not yeah. even worried about those because we probably right. have very little intention of sticking to them if we can get away with it. Yeah. Um, but these, these loyalists changed the course of the colonies because they expected the same kind of um, system that they had grown up with in the American colonies. A certain degree of representation, a certain voice mm-hmm. in self-government. And so Britain had to um, try to set that up in their Canadian colonies. They, mm-hmm. they failed miserably. Um, 
not too long afterwards, in 1837, rebellions broke up, uh, broke out, sorry, in both uh, Ontario and Quebec. At the time, they were known as Upper and Lower Canada. For their oh, yeah, we mentioned this in our chartism. Oh, let me also make one other note before. So in between this period, there's the War of 1812. Yes. And demographically speaking, I guess loyalists and I guess people from uh, Britain, but people are coming. So uh, low upper Canada population was like 90,000 in uh, 1810. And then over the next like 50 years, I think it goes up to like 900,000. So it's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a big, it's a, and that's a lot, pretty alarming to First Nation, to Indigenous people, right? Because it's like, you know. Well, more than, yeah, more than a little. Well, <clears throat> it's alarming to French Canadians because mm-hmm. you're not the majority anymore. And it's quite yeah. obvious that the British are running this colony for the benefit of the English Protestants. Right. That you are considered a problem. That despite the fact that French Canadians fought on the British side in the American Civil War and in the War of 1812. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. We've already covered Indigenous contributions and how well they were rewarded. Yeah, uh, and but it's the same thing for French Canadians. You know, your your yeah. vote of thanks for fighting in the war is, uh, oh, yeah, you damn French Canadians, god damn it. What a, yeah, a problem. English. Uh, in any case, the uh, the eighteen thirty seven rebellions in both Ontario and Quebec had the same causes. It was not English versus French. Right. It right. was both English and French were sick and tired of being ruled by these. Uh, these little cliques, these little groups of... In in Upper Canada, they were called the Family Compact. And in uh, Quebec, they were known as the Chateau Clique. In both cases, the British had decided to rule through a small group of, you know, wealthy, better-born families, the, the elite. So they fixed everything so that those people could run it, for their own benefit, of course. And that made enemies in both places. Now, the rebellion in Lower Canada, in Quebec, was much more significant. There were uh, pitched battles between armed, uh, they called themselves patriots, and they fought against British troops. Uh, While double-checking these things, I found out something I had not known before, and that is that several of the leaders of these armed troops fighting against the British were in fact English-speaking Canadians who lived in Quebec. (laughs) It was definitely not uh, a French versus English thing. It was a French Canadians against terrible government that they just couldn't take anymore. In Upper Canada, of course, it was much more of a a scuffle outside a bar that ended with... uh, William Lyon Mackenzie fleeing to the U.S. Yeah, um, and I told my um, I told my William Lyon Mackenzie joke <laughs> in the Chartism episode. So, yeah, yeah. Um, in the end, the British decided, oh, I say we have a problem here. <laughs> so they sent uh, a commission to investigate. They sent uh, Lord Durham, Radical Jack was his nickname. Uh, Earl then, Earl Grey. No, he became an Earl later, but I don't. Was he Earl of Grey later? Oh, maybe not. Maybe he. Maybe the per, prime minister was the Earl Grey when he was the Earl of Earl of Durham. Yeah. 
Anyway, Lord Durham came over to Canada to investigate what happened with this 1837 business and, of course, to make recommendations. Uh, to quote him directly, I expected to find a contrast between a government and a people. I found two nations warring in the bosom of a single state. I found a struggle not of principles, but of races. And I perceived that it would be idle to attempt any amelioration of laws or institutions until we could first succeed in terminating the deadly animosity that now separates the inhabitants of Lower Canada into the hostile divisions of French and English. But, but that's, that's literally, literally the opposite, opposite of, of, of what, it, what, what happened. happened. Well, yeah, yeah but he, he's English, and you're right to point out in the 1830s, this is Chartism, the reform movement in England, uh, pressure on the government for universal suffrage, for better working conditions, the factory acts. So he thought it would be the same thing in Canada. And he simply couldn't get over the fact that, you know, they speak French. <laughs> uh, there's some other quotations in his report that, you know, give away what he was thinking. He refers to the English as that great race. And the very famous quotation that French Canadians would remember for a long time. He called them a bastard people with no history and no culture. Oh boy. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, the, the British are really getting going on this. And uh, when we talk um, about, you know, in part two, uh, you'll see what a problem the kind of developing racism or racialism of uh, the British Empire was for people here for First Nations. And, you know, the, I think it's around the same time that Macaulay, right? Uh, Lord Macaulay goes to India and he has he has something really good about Indians like it's something like one good bookshelf in an English library is worth more than everything India has ever produced or something like that. <sighs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> I'll try to find it uh, so what does Lord Durham recommend Dave? Well, he he uh, traveled around spoke to many people and he found uh, the same sorts of comments according to French Canadians the problem is that the English are arrogant and unjust. Well, of course, they're going to refer to it as the English because that's who is put in charge. That's who the Chateau clique was. Meanwhile, the English were accusing the French of, and I quote, the vices of a weak and conquered people. In other words, the French Canadians were lazy, treacherous, you know, the same kinds of things you heard about, uh, oh, you know, Jamaica in 1865, uh, Haitians, uh, Indians. I, and I, this I found really confusing. The vices of a weak and conquered people. So if you lose a war, that's that reveals your weakness and inferiority. <laughs> right. You promptly change and adopt the cult, which is really, really interesting coming from a Brit. You <laughs> How many do they lose? A bit of British history. <laughs> so you know, the fact that the Romans came in and conquered you. I mean, they lose. The Saxons they... came in and conquered you, and then the Danes, and then the Normans. If anybody knows getting conquered, it's certainly the people of Britain. The the okay. Let me read you this because it's 1835. So when's Mac, uh, your seven? So Durham's 18. Yeah. So Macaulay in 1835 wrote this. Uh, 
minute on education. So he's arguing for westernizing India. So there's another famous quote, which is uh, to create a class of persons, Indian in blood and color, but English in taste, opinions, morals, and intellect. That's one of his agendas. And then he says in the same document, a single shelf of a good European library was worth the whole native literature of India and Arabia. So (laughs) these guys are, yeah, they're on a roll. Let's just say they're on a roll. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, Durham came to similar conclusions. So he, he made two recommendations. Oh, I should I should mention at this point that that quote about the bastard people with no history immediately yeah. started the Quebec history industry. Right, like right. They of immediately course. started writing Quebec history. I mean, not all of it was uh, well done, but boy, he sure created a lot of employment for Quebec <laughs> Oh, uh, good. Durham's recommendations were two in number. His first union put Upper and Lower Canada together so that the English-speaking Canadians will outnumber the French, dominate them politically, and assimilate them finally. And that will solve the problem. And his second recommendation was responsible government. Uh, The British government chose door number one and decided we can wait on door number two. So they went with union. But the results were not at all what they expected. So if you're not familiar with these places, Lower Canada, that is Quebec, had a sizable English minority uh, in the eastern townships, as I said, but also Montreal. Montreal was an English city, English-speaking city. Uh, French Canadians could work there, but they had to learn English to get along. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the paysan, the countryside, could you know, stick to French alone. But if you wanted to work in Montreal, you had to, you know, learn English to work for your English boss. Right. Uh, there were French Canadians in Ontario, but uh, not a significant number then. So the English attitude is, all right, we've got Ontario is all English. Quebec is part English. So we just have more English than French and we'll outnumber them. So they unified the two colonies, a union of upper and lower Canada, and just created Canada and then let them vote and elect representatives. But the voting splits were not at all what had been anticipated. Uh, First of all, while the English minority in Quebec was mostly conservative, the English voters in Ontario were split between conservatives and a group that I will call liberal reformers. And I mean small l, liberal. I'm not referring to today's political parties. It's very confusing for Canadians because we have a conservative party and a liberal party and doesn't match the definitions that we covered in our episode on isms. Meanwhile, the Quebec vote was split. There were um, a small minority of conservative Quebec voters who basically just wanted to resist, but you had a large majority who were liberal reformers. And those liberal reformers in Quebec found common cause with liberal reformers in Ontario. This is not supposed to happen, French and English working together, but that's what happened. Right. Uh, It was unthinkable for the British. You know, that was not what they intended. Yeah. Uh, You're right. John Ralston Saul gives a lot of credit to Robert Baldwin 
and Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine. Baldwin actually wrote to Lafontaine first and said to him, uh, this union, you know, I understand that if independence is your goal, this union is a disaster. But if you are seeking reform, if you want to work for better government, then we can work together. And, and they did. Uh, they had a seat swap. I think you, were, you knew about this already. Um, La Fontaine was forced to withdraw his candidacy in his uh, Canada East, his Quebec riding, uh, because of violence by the Orange Order to keep French Canadians from voting. So in those days, you went in person. Should up. we uh, should we talk uh, like two minutes about Orange Order and and what that is? Yeah, uh, basically, okay. I think we you may have mentioned it. It has to do with the politics of Ireland, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's basically English Protestant. English. What's that? Yeah, it goes back to the Glorious Revolution, which we covered in the episode on constitutionalism way back, episode two, one. Yeah, it was pretty early. <laughs> Yeah, so the English king was kicked out. They brought in William of Orange, the Dutch stadtholder, and put him on the throne. And the, the revolution ended up spreading into Ireland where fighting broke out between Catholics and Protestants. The reason they kicked the English king off the throne was that he was flirting with Catholicism, and they brought in a good Protestant ruler to make sure that didn't happen. So fighting in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, uh, resulted in a, a siege uh, of Londonderry, I think a short siege of Belfast. Uh, neither place was captured. And then William of Orange came over. The Irish supporters uh, of King James were defeated at the Battle of the Boyne. And then a year later at Ockram. Uh, but the Battle of the Boyne is the one that's remembered. So. Northern Ireland Protestants who supported yeah. William showed their support by wearing orange because he was William of Orange. And after their victory, they continued to wear orange and they continued to celebrate their victory with a parade through Catholic neighborhoods uh, every year yeah. uh, until the present day. So if you think that that was 1689, you would think after 300 years they would get tired, but they, they haven't. Yeah. So it's kind of like a hateful Protestant anti-Catholic. It's we're the we are the champions. You're the losers, yeah. and we're going to remind you of it at every opportunity. And, and this is of course, this is a pretty powerful group in uh, Upper Canada. They're they have how town halls and or organizing <laughs> and leaders. A lot yeah. of politicians belong to the Orange Order. So in Northern Ireland, what they do is they dominate the town council and then supported by English law, like the Test Act, which bars Catholics from taking any office, they basically make sure that the best jobs go to loyal Orangemen, loyal members of the Orange Order, uh, and they make damn sure that Catholics don't get any good positions or influential. And then they just imported that to Canada. So the town council or the city council would make sure the best jobs went to good Protestants and that, you know, Catholics need not apply. And how long did that go on? Um, in the 1960s in Toronto, good luck getting a job with the city if you're Italian. But Toronto was actually known as like an orange town yeah. until 
Yeah, until the big waves of immigration, I guess, in the 60s. Yeah, and they tried the same thing in, in Montreal as well. Right. Uh, yeah, and other places, <laughs> Kingston and... Yeah, there are orange lodges all over the place. So, um, <laughs> so La, La Fontaine wants to run. His supporters show up at the polls to vote, and the Orange Order is there to make sure French Canadians don't get by. Probably just by speaking to them in English, and when they, you know, can't answer properly, or when they hear the accent, just you know, physically blocking them from voting. So Lafontaine decided to avoid the violence and withdrew his candidacy. And that's where Baldwin invited him to run in York constituency. Uh, Baldwin's father actually gave up his seat so that Lafontaine could run. And Lafontaine was able to return the favor. Baldwin lost his seat in uh, Hastings, again, because of Orange Order uh, blocking his supporters from showing up at the polls. And Lafontaine invited him to run in Rimouski in Quebec. So right. this cooperation just goes completely against what the British are hoping for. And there was also like a, there's a story Ralston Sal tells where they, uh, they orange men, I guess, burned their building while they were trying to seat. And then they had to move to a different part of, I think, Montreal. And they just continued as if, have you heard this story? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are you, are you? I'm occurring. <laughs> okay. yeah well you're not going to win in a in a riot against the orange order because you know whose side the police are on right i mean it's a very familiar scenario yeah. which we've seen play out in many many other places in any case by 19 uh, sorry 1848 the reformers had gained ground and they swept the elections and baldwin and lafontaine did something interesting they became co-premiers Rather than, <laughs> rather than one of them being premier and the other his assistant, they, they actually shared the job, which I think is really fascinating. I, I could see why Ralston Saul is kind of fixated on them. Um, right. How important are they? I, I don't know. But it, it's an example of what I'm trying to present here is that instead of the English assimilating the French, it, it just didn't work out that way. Well, he talks, Ralston Saul also talks a lot about like myths. So he talks about like myths aren't, don't have to be false or true. They're just stories that are important, kind of culturally important, Mm -hmm. I guess. So Mm -hmm. he, that, and he's trying to do that. He's trying to, he's trying to present things that are, should be, in his opinion, you know, would be more culturally important than the kinds of stories that are more often told. Well, and he's done his part to promote this myth. Yeah. I, I didn't yeah. know about Baldwin and Lafontaine until I read Ralston Saul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, uh, I did go to French school until uh, grade 13. And oh. I was very familiar with John A. MacDonald and Georges-Étienne Cartier. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll tell you more, lots to say about MacDonald in our Colonial Canada episode. <laughs> we both do. But in terms of following in the footsteps of Lafontaine and Baldwin, yeah, the partnership of Macdonald and Cartier, very very important. Right. So, by 1896, we actually had a French Canadian Prime Minister, Wilfrid Laurier, uh, who I would actually suggest is probably our greatest Prime Minister. I think a case could be made for that. Hmm. Um, he was French Canadian, 
but raised in an English Protestant household. So he understood both sides of the cultural divide. Yeah, in fact, I have a quote by um, in a in a book by him in a book by Bernard Magubane, a South African writer from who was writing this book just before apartheid ended in South Africa, where he was trying to art, trying to like tell people how racism evolved in South Africa. And he has a quote from Laurier, something like, you know, our, uh, the French don't have the mastery of conquering the world that the, <laughs> that the English have, but we have other things or something. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, mm. <laughs> fun quote. I, I, I was trying to find it. I found it significant that we had a French-Canadian prime minister as early as 1896. How long did it take yeah. to get a Catholic president of the United States? That's Kennedy? That's Kennedy. And, uh, right. and a black president? Well, yeah. A little later than that. So it, it's, I, I think he's fairly significant. And he's also mm -hmm. significant in the fine Canadian art of compromise. Being a French-Canadian, uh, administering a country with an English majority and a French-Canadian minority, Laurier was very careful to try to balance between both sides. So mm -hmm. in, in just in very short description... Uh, in the Boer War, in 1899 to 1901, Britain was at war with the uh, Dutch settlers in, in South Africa, and they were having a bit of trouble uh, militarily, but also in terms of their prestige, and they needed all the support they could get. So they asked Canada, and Laurier thought, oh, this is a no-win. French Canadians were dead set against fighting for yeah. British imperialism. Yeah. Never mind fighting, even paying for it they were yeah. against, whereas the majority of English Canadians were rah-rah, <laughs> wave the flag, God save the Queen, and let's go. So Laurier's under pressure to help, but not to help. So he found a compromise where he allowed uh, a contingent of volunteers to go, and uh, Canada would pay the cost of sending them. So Canadian mm -hmm. troops did fight in the Boer War, but volunteers. So French Canadians were not drafted to go. They were unhappy about sending a contingent at all, and they were certainly unhappy about paying for part of it. And English Canadians were unhappy, but maybe a little bit unhappy is better than bitterly divided. And he did the yeah. same thing again in the Naval Bill in 1906 or seven. The British had just invade, invented the Dreadnought, this super battleship, mm. but then realized, oh my God, it's going to cost a fortune, you know, to, to build mm. all of these major vessels. So they wanted Canada to participate, right? Build, build mm -hmm. a Dreadnought, which we will, of course, own and operate. So Laurier again had to decide, well, you know, English Canadians wanted to help the motherland and French Canadians wanted nothing to do with it. So he tried to find a policy that would, you know, if not please both sides, because that's probably not possible, at least not anger them too much. So this was the creation of a Canadian Navy. We built two naval vessels, one for each coast. And in case of war, they would come under uh, British orders. So, uh, I, would, I would say, too, that French-Canadian voting habits are really interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Unlike some countries we've seen, like our neighbors to the south, French Canadians do not vote for the same political party every single time. 
they actually consider their options, which party will do the most for us, and and they have voted for uh, all three major Canadian political parties at one time or another. Mm -hmm. And that means that they are worth uh, wooing. If you're a politician of whatever party, you have a chance to win in Quebec if you can convince them that their interests are served by voting for you. So you are going to be nice to them. You're going to offer them something. It's really smart. Because Mm -hmm. if you vote for the same party time after time after time, well, Mm -hmm. there's really no point in the other parties coming to campaign in your province because, you know, you're dead set against them. And we've seen the results of that in the States. So to, to a certain degree, Canada is much more moderate more prone to compromise and we actually achieved a policy of official bilingualism in in the 60s and 70s which is um i don't know if it's remarkable but it's it's commendable at least and yeah yeah and again returning to ralston saul he he basically says like this is what we need to extend to indigenous to indigenous languages right? <laughs> now that's that's going to be difficult yeah many yeah. people misunderstand official bilingualism they they interpreted it to mean that they had to learn to speak french no the government has to learn to speak french yeah. so as to be able to offer services in the official language of your choice okay it means that you know, if you are bilingual, you're going to have a, a shot at a job for the government, which you may mm-hmm. not get if you are unilingual. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, I think it made Canada a better country. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the first reason why Canadians think that we're somewhat of a role model, because we're moderate and bilingual and possibly multicultural and, and all of those things. The second reason why Canada is important in the world is this concept of devolution as opposed to revolution. Canada is the first country to get its independence without a violent revolution, which is interesting, at least. So why did that happen? Well, it was mostly Britain's idea, to tell the truth. They decided that uh, Canada was becoming difficult to administer and defend. In the 1860s, they were terrified that they would get drawn into a conflict with the United States. At the end of the Civil War, the U.S. has a large, well-trained army, and there have been quite a few noises of this manifest destiny. (laughs) Seward was the big voice, I think. Yeah, but he's the Secretary of State, so that's pretty pretty close to the president. So Britain is concerned because if... America decides to seriously invade Canada, that's going to cost a fortune to defend. And they are beginning to think that maybe the cost of administering and defending Canada could be borne by Canadians. <laughs> maybe we can pass on some of the responsibilities. No, there's to- that not- there's that Anglo-Saxon genius. <laughs> yeah. We're giving you a promotion. Oh, do I get a raise? No. Oh, do I get to, you know, the privileges? Um, No, you get more responsibility. But that'll be good for you. 
yeah, they were also worried. Uh, th- the lesson of, of that was driven home again by the Fenians. So these are uh, Irish Republicans. Um, some of them are members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They, they basically want to kick the English out of Ireland. There were quite a few Irish-American veterans of the Civil War, and they're thinking maybe we could strike a blow for old Ireland by attacking the Brits in Canada. We could take over Canada and hold it hostage, you know, and this seems like a bit of a a dream in retrospect, and it even seems a little bit silly, but it certainly scared the British. First attempts by the Fenians were very ineffective, but on one occasion, over a thousand armed Fenians crossed the Niagara River and fought two small battles with Canadian militia, and they got the better of them. Eventually, though, they uh, retreated, uh, released their prisoners and retreated to Buffalo. So the great Fenian scare, in retrospect, doesn't look like that big a deal. But at the time, it was terrifying for Britain, and it's... Yeah, because you also don't know what that is, right? If the Americans back that in a big way, or if it turns into a pretext, like, oh, you killed our men in Buffalo, and then... Yeah, so they have to get busy diplomatically, they have to go and and talk to the Americans, but they also have to send troops to Canada, which is expensive, and we need those troops elsewhere, right? (laughs) There's a global (laughs) empire to administer, yeah. Yeah, trouble spots all over the place, so this is expensive and annoying and could get us embroiled in a full-scale war with the Americans, which we do not want. So some genius at Whitehall decided, you know, direct control isn't absolutely necessary. We could possibly, you know, loosen the reins a little bit, give them a little bit of autonomy while still maintaining control. So Canada became a country officially in 1867, but we really weren't. We did not have full independence. Instead, we got what was called dominion status. So Canada was allowed to elect its own government and was considered sovereign internally. But Britain still controlled our foreign policy. The Queen remained the head of state. I think that's what they gave Afghanistan. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they spelled it out the same way. Yeah, the Queen is still head of state. She appoints the Governor General, who is her direct representative in Canada. And there was no Canadian-born Governor General until Vincent Massey in 1952. Hey, Vincent Massey was one of the um, family compact, I think. Oh, not Vincent, but the Masseys. Yeah, no, they were upper class, that's for sure. There's that, um, here's another class joke from, I don't know, 100 years ago. In Canada, we have no classes, just the Masseys and the Masses. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't really even know where that comes from. I don't even remember where I read that, but it's like a history book. So Canada didn't uh, have any foreign relations. We didn't have an ambassador until 1926. We didn't sign a treaty until 1923, and that was the glorious halibut treaty with the United States. It, passports in, fact, in um, passports in 1943, uh, I think. Yeah, we were British subjects until yeah. then. So full independence didn't come until 1931 by a a, a document the Statute of Westminster, virtually unknown to most Canadians. They just think we got our independence in 1867 and that was that. But really, 
until 1931, we could not pass a law contrary to Britain's. So that's the date of our independence, 1931. But the experiment of granting partial independence to Canada worked like a charm. It saved Britain a ton of money. The Canadian people were just as fiercely loyal to the empire as anyone in Britain and went along with British international policy without without a qualm. So the experiment was so successful that it was extended to Australia, uh, New Zealand, and South Africa. Well, white South Africa, and we know how that worked. And they also created some issues, some big issues, um, because the British North America Act of 1867 gave the Canadian federal government uh, exclusive jurisdiction over Indigenous people and the lands reserved for them, which is going to create, oh boy, yeah, all kinds of issues. Well, which we'll yeah. get to in a, in a little bit because it deserves to be yeah we're gonna study i'm gonna in talk detail. exclusively about that yeah yeah so the the only people uh that are really disappointed by this process of of you know peaceful d devolution are historians and filmmakers because it's really just not that glorious is it you can make a movie about the American Revolution, and they have. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they, they've made a few. Um, but we don't have, like, glorious battles. or. You know, the American Revolution one is the movies are glorified <laughs> well beyond what they were as well. Yeah, and we didn't get a chance to do that, to create <laughs> some myths and some heroes and, you know, make up stuff. So we tried. We tried. Uh, we celebrate the fathers of Confederation. There are a couple uh -huh. of uh, grainy photographs and a famous painting of them meeting. You got all these, you know, old white guys with big beards and bad hair. And uh, yeah, we tried to make these fathers of Confederation look like Old Testament judges. And you know. <laughs> well, there, there's that picture of the uh, constant. I don't know the Declaration of Independence or whatever, and that's got somebody did a you know, there's a famous painting of them and then someone put a red dot over all of the guys that own slaves. <laughs> it's, all, it's like two faces that, that that you can see and the rest is all red dots. So yeah. You should get something yeah. like that. Go well, on. a closer look at our Fathers of Confederation. Uh, yeah, they, there's some feet of clay in there. Starting, of course. <laughs> all right, so going, going to the myth. The, the myth is that John A. MacDonald was a visionary and he brought together all the Canadian colonies to, to urge them to unite. Actually, it was Britain that wanted this. Britain wanted the maritime provinces to unite as well. So Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island, they're you know, geographically close together. And rather than having three separate administrations, it would be convenient if we could you know, offload some financial responsibilities and have them you know, work together. It, they, they would be less economically and politically dependent on Britain. So a meeting was set up in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, for September of 1864. Newfoundland, another British colony, asked to be invited. And then the Premier of Canada, Johnny MacDonald, invited himself. 
So they, they basically crashed this party that was supposed to be about maritime union and turned it into a question of, let's all unite. What do you think? So <clears throat> without dealing with McDonald's uh, policy towards the Indigenous peoples, which we'll get to later on, let's just talk about Johnny McDonald, the politician. So first of all... <laughs> Everything about John A. McDonald just reeks of alcohol. Uh, he was well known as a heavy drinker, which might not have been out of the ordinary in those days, but he was famous for it. So in an era of, you know, big, big drinkers to have a reputation for it, it's quite interesting. He also used alcohol to bribe voters. He was, uh, oh, guilty of electoral fraud on numerous occasions. And he was also a crook. Uh, he got caught more than once embezzling government money. He and his cronies made uh, a good number of dollars building railroads in uh, Ontario, in Upper Canada, and decided that they could extend this to the entire nation. And if we could bring the maritime provinces in, then their taxpayers could help pay for even more railroads. So, so at Charlottetown, he used his tried-and-true techniques uh, parties, banquets, and rivers of booze. I... <laughs> where where are we in the U.S. <laughs> where are we in the U.S. Civil War at this point? Is it still going? Is it it's winding still, down? It's still going, and it's one of the reasons why Britain is saying you folks get together and talk about union now. Yeah. So, <clears throat> the meeting in Charlottetown. Historians have tried to turn this into some glorious occasion. It's actually kind of funny. First of all, the circus was in town. And that's where everybody was. So when the ship arrived carrying the delegates from Ontario and Quebec, there was nobody at the dock to meet them. <laughs> uh, and they met in a, a hotel in Charlottetown, uh, had lots to eat, lots to drink. And uh, McDonald pitched his idea of uniting all of the British colonies in North America. Prince Edward Island was really not interested. I mean, I don't know what they thought about being united with New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, but they were definitely not interested in joining uh, Canada, that is, Ontario and Quebec, because they knew they'd be just such a small minority. And Newfoundland wasn't in the running either, right? No, Newfoundland opted out fairly early. They, they yeah. wanted to join the Maritime Provinces, but no, not not become a tiny minority in this big they knew yeah. they knew you know the decisions would be made for the benefit of ontario and quebec and they would yeah. be an afterthought so no they yeah. left early <coughs> sorry prince edward island was was not interested in fact they did not join confederation they did not join canada uh until 1873 and newfoundland until 1952 right 1949 and, and even then, the guy who brought them in, Joey Smallwood, is either considered a great hero or a treacherous villain. There are still some Newfoundlanders who are yeah that, that they can't. hard to hard to argue. They got a lot out of joining. <laughs> no, they got a raw deal. Yeah. Prince Edward Island got a bribe. Macdonald offered them a bridge. I will build a bridge connecting you with the mainland, and that bridge was finished in. Um, Wait, are we still waiting for it or something? No, I'm just trying to remember the date. Uh, 
the bridge was finished in May of 1997. Wow. He's uh, John, A. <laughs> John A. McDonald is a, is a very persistent man. That's, that's yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I don't want to give you a catalog of all of the stuff he did, but one is sufficient, the Pacific Scandal. So this is in 1872. McDonald's government was awarding uh, a charter for the Canadian Pacific Railway. So we're going to let a private company build the railway, the, the Canadian Pacific Railway. And he gave the charter to a group of businessmen who had donated 179000 to his party's election funds. 45000 of that went directly to McDonald. And then later on, he wrote them a telegram uh, asking for another 10000 He said that would be his final request. And that telegram was leaked to the public and everybody found out you know, with no room for evasion that, yeah, basically I am giving government contracts to whoever gives me the most money. So his government fell over it. But that's basically what the guy was, was about at the best of times. Also interesting that Nova Scotia was not interested in joining. Joseph Howe uh, was known as the anti-Confederate. He was... and. This guy just an, an interesting career. But please, please pardon it, me. This little digression. This is a newspaper person, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a Nova Scotia yeah. journalist. Um, he was charged in 1835 with seditious libel because he published a letter accusing leading Nova Scotia politicians and police of taking thirty thousand pounds of public money over a number of years. So. For publishing that letter, he was arrested and taken to court. Uh, I don't know what the law is like now, but in those days, truth is no defense. If your allegations are true, that doesn't matter. It's That's still controversial uh, in the law, as far as I understand it. It's supposed to be a defense now, but it's um, there, there are still people who argue. I, I've been in arguments with people who tried to say that that uh, the truth was not a defense. Yeah. So if you hurt this person's reputation or career, you are guilty of libel. And because they're the government, that's seditious libel. So Howe addressed the jury for six hours, and he outlined every single case of corruption <laughs> that he knew about. The judge instructed the jury to find him guilty. They took 10 minutes to decide the opposite. <laughs> right, and this is this is the 1840s, right? So again, like in our Chartism episode, like this is this is a time of big freedom of press kinds of um, debates in England as well. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the the judge's son, Brenton Halliburton, was so upset by Howe's actions that he challenged him to a duel, and they actually shot. So Halliburton missed, and then Howe deloped, which I think is the coolest thing you can do. Uh, shoot in the air or whatever? He shot in the ground. Yeah. You're not even worth shooting at. And that's the end of it. So uh, he went into politics, became premier of Nova Scotia, and was known, as I say, as the anti-Confederate, because he argued that union with Canada would be a disaster for us. Uh, he was not invited to Charlottetown. Uh, Charles Tupper and a group of other guys went. And uh, they signed on. Nova Scotia showed how they felt about it. In the first election for Canadian Parliament, they sent 19 uh, representatives. 
18 of the 19 were anti-Confederates. So the first separatists in Canadian history were Nova Scotians, and they started their opposition on day one. Day one. <laughs> so that's why we can't really make a movie about it. It's, it's really about uh, corruption and uh, silly stuff like that maybe like a, a eight part comedy series on netflix or something might work oh, i would upset people though yeah anyway the third uh canadian claim to being a role model in the world centers around our reputation for welcoming immigrants and refugees for the fact that we have a multicultural society um i don't know that that reputation is deserved in fact it it's if it happened it it happened by accident so we yeah and it and it happened uh like again in the 60s and 70s of this of you yeah. Know, the, yeah not not in any of the historical times we're discussing yeah, and you can only wax lyrical about how open-minded and friendly we are if you ignore quite a few things. Yeah. So, um, after the so, Loyalists, what is it that we're ignoring? <laughs> after the Loyalists, the first major wave of immigrants to Canada were the Irish uh, fleeing economic depression and, of course, the potato famine in the 1840s. And they were... Um, not welcome. There were too many of them. Many of them were sick. Uh, the Orange Order certainly did not want them there. French Canadians were worried too, because so many of these uh, immigrants were, you know, uh, t had typhus or cholera. Uh, quite a number of them died on the way. Quite a number of them died in quarantine on a, a small island off the uh, in, in the Saint Lawrence. Yeah. And, of course, they fit into society by taking the jobs that no one else wanted. So street sweeping and refuse. And they, the British just dumped them, right? Like, they would just load them on boats and just dump them. Like, they, it was not a... They made them pay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. They made but them it was pay. not like a... But, but the, I guess what I'm saying is, like, the Baldwin-Lafontaine government was um, having to figure out how well, to... What do we do with these thousands yeah. of... Yeah, how oh, to yeah, yeah. how to feed them and like settle them. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a nice two-way traffic. You know, the ships carrying lumber to yeah. Britain came back right. with, you know, Irish migrants. Yeah. In the well, in they the were exporting. They were exporting food from Ireland during the famine, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, and people. So the Irish got jobs, uh, many of them building the railway. Now, of course, that led to a problem at the other end of the railway in British Columbia because how could the Irish get there? There was no railway to get them out west, so who's going to build it? And that led to the importation of Chinese labor, of Chinese coolies. And many thousands of them came over to work on the railway. They were great uh, railway workers, uh, cheap labor, hardworking. There was only one problem with these Chinese laborers, and that is that some of them decided they wanted to stay afterwards. And that, that was not part of the plan. 
you're supposed to go home to China. So uh, the numbers of Chinese who decided to stay, and some of them started bringing over their families, uh, caused considerable alarm. And a new law in 1885 called the head tax. So from that point on, any Chinese who wanted to come to Canada had to pay $500, which in 1885 strikes me as a pretty staggering sum. They also had to carry their head tax certificate on their person at all times so that, you know, police could stop them and verify that they weren't uh, illegal aliens. uh, And have them. There's quite a bit of, um, yeah, apartheid kinds of policies with indigenous people, which I'll get back to next episode as well. Yeah. So in 18... Yeah, in 1885, the head tax started, but Canada also uh, reached out to the Chinese, well, Britain did. They reached out to the Chinese and Japanese governments, uh, asking them if they would kindly do what they could to limit the number of immigrants (laughs) coming to their shores. I have a quote from the Chinese consulate. It's uh, quoted in John Price's book, Orienting Canada. Uh, Huang Chushen, I think is how it's pronounced, but he said, uh, it is unjust in principle for Europeans to insist upon the right of unrestricted commercial relations with China and at the same time enforce unjust and unequal restrictions upon Chinese merchants and laborers. Mm-hmm. Uh, bit of a double standard, right? Was and we will... response to that? No, the only response I can think of is the one from 19... oh, 1907 or eight. It was around the time of the anti-Asian riots, uh, yeah. a, a liberal cabinet minister named William Lyon Mackenzie King. Ah, there he is. Future Prime Minister of Canada, who uh, in a long-winded statement, he, he never said anything short-winded, so it was pretty standard for him, uh, and using a lot of big words, basically suggested that you Asians really don't want to come here. Yeah. It, it's not your kind of place. It's, it, <laughs> it's really quite cold. Yeah, and and you will you can, find that mixing with the people here would not really be to your advantage. Probably you, best for everyone concerned if you stay home. You can build the railway, though. Um, the <laughs> McDonald McDonald uh, in 1885. This is one of my favorite uh, favorite actually uh, quotes of his. He um he was arguing for disenfranchisement, right? So. Uh, Japanese and Chinese Canadians actually were disenfranchised by the by the BC British Columbia government. Uh, they fought; one of them fought in the Supreme Court to try to get voting rights. The Supreme, the BC Supreme Court granted them voting rights, but then the government overturned it. The British uh, Privy Council just overturned it. Um, but uh, when he was arguing, when Mac- Johnny Macdonald was arguing this in 1885. He said, the Aryan races will not wholesomely amalgamate with the Africans or the Asiatics. The cross of those races, like the cross of the dog and the fox, is not successful. So that's where that's where noble John A. Macdonald was at on this debate on immigration. Yeah. Man. That's a good one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Macdonald... Uh, initiated a new immigration policy for Canada. We need immigrants. And so this part of us welcoming immigrants is true. We need as many as we can find. First of all, to boost the economy. 
so like modern politicians, it's the economy stupid. That's the, the thing that motivates them. But there was an urgent need to settle the West. Now, <laughs> again, we're temporarily going to leave aside the question of the fact that there were already people in the West. But since we're planning to empty the West, we're going to have to fill it again with, of course, the right kind of people. Also, there's a bit of a, a rush on this one. This is urgent. We have to keep the Americans out because if they perceive any kind of vacuum, they're going to move in and then we're going to have tons of trouble. So we need lots and lots of people and we need to put them in the West primarily. Now, the first choice for immigrants, of course, would be England, uh, failing that, Scotland or, or Wales. Uh, we're, we're looking for, obviously, white English-speaking or Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So the expression WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, that's our preferred type of immigrant. So they went looking for farmers in the north of England or in Scotland who'd be willing to come over. Uh, they found a few, and then they found a gold mine of orphans and poor children in Britain. Between 1869 and 1948, over 100,000 children from Britain were shipped over to Canada as indentured farm workers and domestic servants. Wow. In, in case you've missed our earlier episodes, indentured means that you are contracted to work for someone else for yeah, room and board. Yeah, it's till, basically slavery with a term limit of some kind, right? That, that's it. That's yeah. it. These children were worked hard. They were often subjected to uh, harsh and abusive treatment. The horror stories from those experiences, there are many, many, many of them, and it's another stain on our reputation, our history, and more people should know about it. You know, after getting pious about abolishing slavery, continuing to practice it is pretty reprehensible. And, and of course, just to make the point again, we're not shy about enslaving our own people. It just depends on which group of people you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, there weren't enough of these children, though, and you, you couldn't send them out on, onto the Western prairies alone, so we need more immigrants. So a little later on in the period, uh, Wilfrid Laurier's Minister of the Interior, a guy named Clifford Sifton, uh, put it into words. What kind of people are we looking for? <laughs> We're looking for quality immigrants. And here's, here's the full quotation from Sifton. When I speak of quality, I have in mind, I think, something quite different from what is in the mind of the average writer or speaker upon the question of immigration. I think a stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat, born on the soil, whose forefathers have been farmers for ten generations, with a stout wife and a half dozen children, is good quality. So this is like Jefferson. It's like Thomas Jefferson, uh, really, um, like the agrarian white peasant fantasy thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was not interested, Sifton, was not interested in uh, tradesmen or artisans, especially if they wouldn't work more than eight hours a day uh, and will not work on a farm. 
he did not want urbanites, city dwellers, who would come to Canadian cities and compete for jobs with British-born subjects and, you know, cause unemployment and, you know... Uh, he said, I am indifferent as to whether or not he is British born. That's if he's a city guy. It matters not what his nationality is. Such men are not wanted in Canada. And the more of them we get, the more trouble we shall have. So give us your farmers in their sheepskin coats with their stout wives and their half dozen children. But if you plan on living in a city, don't bother. Uh, Sifton was also, um, in charge of, I don't know what the department was called then, the Department of Indian Affairs? Yeah, yeah, it was called the Indian Affairs. Yeah, he didn't care about that at all. He cut their budget. He was much more concerned with other things. Yeah, and well, you'll as we'll see in the next uh, part, uh, cutting their budget was a weapon as oh, well. Yeah. I mean, it was a very... It didn't happen accidentally, that's for sure. So since we can't get enough English Protestants to come over, what's the next best thing? Scandinavians, the Dutch, the Germans. I know they're not English speaking, but they are Protestant, which is very important to make sure that they don't vote along with those French Canadian Catholics who are annoying. So Sifton's policy involved uh, advertising, posters set up in those countries, advertising the open spaces of Canada, offering free land free tools, help getting started. Uh, No such posters or offers were made in uh, Southern Europe. Yeah. Um, And, uh, and again, we'll also see that uh, this, there was a hollow promise of those things to uh, indigenous people, if they would convert to agriculture, but they were (laughs) deliberately, right. They deliberately denied all of that. Yeah. That's for sure. Kinds of help. Yeah. Yeah, the reason that they didn't advertise in Southern Europe was a mixture of elements. The first was weather. They had this, you know, it's cold yeah. in the prairies and you guys are too soft. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, because they subdivided their racial theories oh into like... Yeah, we'll yeah. get into this in much more detail. But yeah. uh, Spain and Portugal, uh, France, obviously, we don't want any more French-speaking people if we can help it. Uh you know, Italy, those places. Number one, knock on you. You're too soft. You're, you live in warm weather and you couldn't handle the cold. Second, we don't want any more Catholics. And third is this internal racism where, yeah, you guys aren't as good as Northern Protestants. And- so when did all the Italian uh, immigration come? After unification or after World War Two? Oh, uh, there was some before World War Two, but World War Two was like... The- okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, once they saw, once the people in southern Italy saw Canadian and American soldiers, and how just how much stuff they had, right? right like the right. average soldier was carrying more food on them than right. they had. So they, right. thought, oh my God, the streets over there must be paved with gold. Right. And okay. there were internal reasons, of course, for for leaving. So the recruiting was eventually extended to Eastern Europe, uh, not really Poland. Again, Catholics, but. Um, Russia, Ukraine, places like that. Uh, Sifton's ideal, hardy farmers, used to the climate, and most important, not Catholic. Now, the open- you know what I find really interesting is the use of the word open door because there, there's the open door here and then in the context of imperialism in China. 
the the imperialists insist on a a totally different open door. They call it the open door, which means China has to give. Yeah, China has to give the same uh, privileges to every imperialist power that they give to one imperialist power. (laughs) Yes. It's weird. It's weird the way these words get used at the same time. Well, open is good. Yeah, yeah, open is good. Yeah. So, yeah, free trade, freedom. Come on, Justin. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Lapse of... (laughs) Now, the open door wasn't wasn't actually popular with uh, English Canadians. I'm not sure to what extent French Canadians uh, were concerned because most of the immigrants weren't coming to Quebec. Hmm. But English Canadians were worried about this. They, they thought that um, the great race would be yeah. di- diluted. And there was quite a bit of anti-immigrant feeling um, in Ontario and certainly on the prairies. And, and a lot of it anti-Ukrainian. If you're Eastern European, you're you're Ukrainian, and there right. were some very uh, derogatory terms for these uh, these people, these groups, many of whom went to live in in you know isolated communities with people of their own origin. So right. you could go to the prairies and find towns out there that are, you know, pretty much founded by this group. I think Gimli, Manitoba is is Icelandic. Wow. Yeah, when I was in Kansas, my friends uh, Preeti and Stan, they took me to this town, which was Swed- like a Swedish town. I think it was called <laughs> Lindbergh or something. Yeah. Swedish. Yeah, Minnesota's <laughs> like that as well. And if, and if you look at a map, you know, Minnesota's pretty close to the area that Canada's trying to settle at the same time. Uh, there are certain groups who are not welcome. The door is not that open. Um, uh, if you're black, you can forget it, of course. Now, there, the interesting thing is there are already black Canadians living in Canada, but yeah, yeah. they live separately. They live right. in small communities on their own. Uh, in fact, it's segregation. I That's mostly Ontario, right? Oh, yeah. These are the kinds of places that John Brown visited on, on that tour that I think I still think we should uh, organize for money. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's mostly Ontario, Nova Scotia a bit. But there are black communities. They, they, they just live apart, uh, out of sight. And that seems to work for the... I mean, I don't know a lot about these communities, but I... So it's not legal, It's but it's uh, it might as well be... It's kind of like Canadian racism. It's yeah. largely unspoken. Yeah, right. Uh, South Asians, meanwhile, mm-hmm. uh, are being actively discouraged. Now, the problem for Canadian authorities is that they are British subjects as well. Yeah, uh, India, Bengal, uh, Pakistan and are all soldiers. So a lot of so there's a lot. The first apparently the first big uh, group of um, Indians, Punjabis, I think, were around the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century. Yep, uh, and there a lot of them are like. Fight, you know, fighting for the British army around the world. <laughs> Hong Kong. I think it, in this case, it was actually like the Hong Kong. Okay. Yeah. And then thinking so. that because of that, they're entitled to fair yeah. treatment. <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> Fools. So, well, yeah. So the the open door is our policy, but we have to make some contingencies for uh, these people. So in 1908, Canada came up with the continuous voyage policy. 
And this states that if you can't reach Canada without stopping on the way, uh, you can't come in. Oh, it's so, this is all so Canadian. So it doesn't sound at all, it's just a purely technical question, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you stop somewhere on the way? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no, no good. Um, Which leads me to one specific incident. It's a little later, it's 1914, and it's the Komagata Maru affair. So this is the name of a ship uh, chartered by 376 immigrants from India, Japanese ship and crew, uh, Indian immigrants, mostly Sikh, uh, mostly Punjabi. Uh, They sailed from Hong Kong. They're all British subjects. And when they reached Vancouver, they were refused permission to dock. Like, no, you can't come in. The conservative premier of British Columbia, McBride, categorically stated that these passengers would not be allowed to disembark, which is interesting because he has no say in the matter. Immigration is a federal decision, and he's a provincial premier. So what are you talking about? But he made his his views quite clear. Um, Another Conservative member of Parliament, H.H. Stevens, organized a public meeting against allowing them to land. Uh, He was ably assisted by immigration official uh, Malcolm Reed. Oh, little little known fact. I didn't even know this. The first immigration official to to meet the ship was uh, Fred Cyclone Taylor, who was a, uh, a hockey star. I think he's in the Hall of Fame. Like, uh, but like this was a positive. Like he, no, he was trying to. Not oh. why he's in the Hall of Fame. It's purely for hockey. I didn't realize that he had had any, any connection with this incident at all. But was he trying to say let them in, or was he trying uh, to say no? He was probably told, uh, Fred, they're they're not coming ashore. Okay, let them. Okay, yeah. So the Canadian government now responded. Uh, a tugboat was sent to push the Komagata Maru back to sea. Uh, there were some, I don't know how to phrase this correctly. There were some fears that on board the ship were members of the Qatar party. Yeah, yeah. These were, independence. Uh, yeah, they were basically independence, an independence movement. Yeah. So the British were involved in this and telling the Canadian government, you do not want to, uh, let this ship in this could be big big trouble now that (laughs) matched perfectly well with the canadian government's attitude which is we don't (laughs) we don't want these people um that's pretty amazing stuff about this in uh there's another book i keep mentioning gerald horn but there's a book by gerald horn called the end of empires african americans and india and it's about basically african americans and their connections to pre-independence India. So there's a lot on this party, the Qadar party. Okay. And see, I didn't know much about them. And Mm -hmm. this is one element that's left out of the um, textbooks in school. Yeah. I mean, otherwise you can find out about the Komagata Maru, but this little part is left out. And I think rightly so, because the group of people who knew about this, potential element of the problem are not the ones who are most vocal about keeping them out. Right. 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 The reason for keeping them out is not security. It it's just, we don't want them. So the ship is in Vancouver Harbor for an extended period of time. 
uh, the people on board are having to, you know, buy food. And there's a, a group onshore of uh, in Indian Canadians who are trying to organize a meeting to help the passengers. Uh, in typical British fashion, there was an agent who infiltrated the meeting and made a list of names so that they could identify the supporters of the Qatar party and so on. Uh, yeah, there were interrogations. U.S. intelligence was apparently in. I'm just, yeah. I'm just looking at Horn's, uh, Horn's, Horn's book right now. It's a little crazy. The react, <laughs> the reaction is way over the top. And then yeah. uh, there was a bit of a riot on board the vessel because the police were trying to push them off, and some of the passengers were throwing lumps of coal and bricks at the police. And the Vancouver Sun reported. Howling masses of Hindus. Well, there you go. You know, oh, great. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do this kind of stuff, at least get your. Right. <laughs> no, they never, they never got that. Sikhs, yeah. There were only twelve Hindus on board. Right. Twenty-seven Muslims and three hundred and thirty-seven Sikhs. So, if they yeah. were all howling, would that constitute a mass? Would you say? I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Just get it right. That's my point. The uh, Canadian government finally sent uh, our naval vessel, the HMCS Rainbow, with uh, quite a few troops on board to escort the Komagatamaru out of Canadian waters. Hmm. Only 20 of the passengers were admitted to Canada, and the rest of them returned on the ship to Calcutta, hmm. which they reached you know, mon- months after starting their journey where they were stopped by a British gunboat and an attempt was made to arrest some of the leader, the Qatar leaders, uh, Baba Gurdit Singh uh, was one name yeah. they were really looking for. But I think he escaped, right? I don't know or, what happened, but it turned into another riot and 19 <laughs> passengers were killed. Oh, okay. So, you know, was this, was this a real threat? Um, I found well, out that two of the... Punjabi informers who passed information to the British to an immigration official were uh, murdered in August of 1914. And that British immigration official was murdered in October of 1914. So that's actually some pretty serious stuff. But as I say, I don't know how much it has to do with the issue of the Komagata Maru because... Yeah, it was a it was a it was an independence, you know, it was an underground independence movement, right? No, so. I'm just wondering to what extent did Canadian immigration officials know about this? Right. They probably didn't. I don't know. I don't think they did. No. Anyway, uh all of these measures, the head tax, the the uh continuous voyage uh, garbage, all of this stuff was only partly successful in keeping Asians out of Canada. By 1901, there were 16,000 Chinese in British Columbia, 8,000 Japanese, 5,000 South Asians. That's that's not a lot. So we were pretty successful at keeping them out. But obviously it was too many for white British Columbians uh, because from September 7th to 9th, 1907, they embarked on some pretty significant anti-Asian riots. Uh, As far as I know, no deaths, but considerable property damage. And the Canadian government reacted by, um, well, the British government did it for us, but getting in touch with um, the government of Japan 
and forming the Gentlemen's Agreement, Japan agreed to restrict passports to Canada to an annual limit of four hundred dollars. Uh, sorry, <laughs> four hundred uh, people. The dollars comes in uh, the tax, yeah, with another head tax. This one on Indians, two hundred dollars. So the open door was, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Canada made an official apology for the head yep. tax on the Chinese. Uh, Prime Minister Harper did that in 2006. In 2008, there was a private member's bill uh, to apologize for the Komagata Maru incident. And there were quite a few private member's bills before that actually happened i think the official apology had to come from justin trudeau which tells you like how long it took yeah he he has a he has a big uh i guess indian voter base so yeah plus he's practiced that apology speech several times <laughs> right uh, there are a number of novels and plays centered around the issue of the komagata maru yeah. and the only thing i can say in 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 defense of Canada, I don't know if it's a defense. Basically, my point is this: um, these incidents are known. They're in Canadian history textbooks for high school students. Yeah, uh, I I taught the Komagata Maru episode for you know twenty twenty years or more. Mm-hmm. And the Canadian textbook doesn't doesn't hide these things. In fact, it highlights them, uh, just as it does the treatment of Japanese Canadians, the internment during uh, World mm-hmm. War II. So these aren't these aren't uh, hidden. They're not swept under the the carpet. In fact, they're they're highlighted. Of course, we then pat ourselves on the back for you know our openness and honesty yeah. in admitting these things. But gosh, there's a lot of them. You know, <laughs> let me uh, let, incidents that we have to apologize for. Let me make a couple of notes about textbooks uh, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because the, the the question of apology and uh, acknowledgement, like it's really a big part of the you know not I wouldn't say it's a part of our history, but it's definitely a part of the way history is talked about in Canada, how history is taught in Canada, and that I think the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report. You know, it's that many thousands of pages, but it is super uh, important and like has not been taken up as much as it should uh, be. Um, you know, I guess the final report was in 2015, but I've been I've been going through it because some of the stuff that I've been reading uh, for our next part has um, it, it, it's all in the TRC report as well. So I'll, I'll find something in another source and then I'll look and check to see if it's there. And it is um, uh, invariably in these among these 4,000 pages or whatever, however many thousands of pages. But the textbooks question is taken up in the, the TRC itself. So one of the things they say is uh, about one textbook by Henrietta Marshall, a series of history books that were used throughout the British Empire, including Canada at the time. So 1908 history of the empire called Our Empire Story. Henrietta Marshall says, the stories are not all bright. How should they be? We have made mistakes. We have been checked here. We have stumbled there. We may own it without shame, perhaps almost without sorrow, and still love our empire and its builders. (sighs) 
<laughs> and then another one, you know, another good. Just as as awful as that is, yeah, it's pretty good for 1908. <laughs> I mean, it, it, right. you made mistakes. Um, yeah, but that's it. calling the mistakes is pretty. Yeah, yeah, it's part of the it's part of the doctrine. Uh, you know, the change of course. Chomsky calls it the change of course, right? Uh, so whatever we may have done, even if we just did it like two hours ago. You know that's in the past, and we're uh, we're embarking on a different future now. Okay, but I still think it's pretty good for 1908. Well, 1908 was pretty bad, as we'll see. Um, and then there's uh, the uh, 1969 study of 143 Ontario school texts observed. To take the term most frequently applied to each group, we are most likely to encounter in textbooks devoted Christians, great Jews, hardworking immigrants. Infidel Muslims, primitive Negroes, and savage Indians. So, but uh, you, you, uh, you, you were just you were just a toddler in 1969. So you may have had some some improved books by the time you started teaching. Well, plus I went to French school. We just didn't talk about indigenous groups. <laughs> no, you weren't a toddler. You were a, you were a, you were a kid in good standing. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> the, so. Uh, uh, the interesting thing is, as we pride ourselves on our, you know, generous immigration policy, the door still isn't open today. It's really, really interesting. Um, there was an article in The Atlantic talking about, you know, the Canadian immigration policy, and they said the welcome mat is surrounded by a bed of nails. <laughs> so yes, we perfect. Are, we are protected by distance. So, for example, we never had to deal like Greece and uh, uh, Hungary and, and several European countries yeah. with a massive influx of Syrian refugees, how would yeah. we have reacted? I don't know that we would have done anything noteworthy in a positive sense. More, more yeah. likely, we would have found some kind of craven compromise to avoid. Anyway, we are protected by uh, distance. It's, it's hard to get here. Uh, yeah. We also charge a considerable sum and we use a great weapon, bureaucratic delay. Oh, yeah. That's a very good Canadian weapon against Indigenous people as well, by the yeah. way. It can take up to five years to get landed immigrant status. Yeah. And the rejection rate is 30%. Right. Which is high. Yeah. High. So yeah. this rejection rate climbs significantly if you are from Somalia or Yemen or Afghanistan or Syria, it climbs to 75%. <laughs> now, you might say that, well, you know, Canadian, the average Canadian's attitude is more positive. I, I don't know about that. I mean, the old refrain was, oh, these immigrants are taking our jobs, which is, you know, pretty easy to debunk. Uh, really? You <laughs> wanted to work on the railroad, did you? Or, you know? Or, or you're planning on a all those lineups of or, all those white people lining up to pick tomatoes in Leamington, right? Yeah, yeah. Or or to wash dishes in the restaurant, and yeah, yeah, yeah. The new refrain is is different. It's um, oh, these immigrants—they're just coming for our health care. Huh. I don't notice you turning down the free health care. Right. So that's something. You and uh, and they're also these are these are people who are like writing instructions to Americans on how to get here and and why it would be good to you know <laughs> right 
come to Canada because of healthcare. So. Right. So after after doing this episode, I oh, we haven't even be, begin to touch on indigenous yeah. issues, but um, are we a role model for the world? I'd have to say no on that one. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about look. When I say no, though, I have to. I have to say, uh, I don't know about the idea that one country can be a role model for another country. Anyway, like in general. Well, I, I so, disagree. Okay. I okay. I think that we should have our educational specialists over in Finland. Like, mm-hmm. what yeah, they, they start their day later. They end it earlier. They don't have homework, and they do way doing. better. <laughs> they do way better on every scale. And then I would have another group go over to Finland to study how they take care of the homeless. Yeah, because they yeah. have a different approach to it that works better and yeah. costs less. Yeah. So yeah, and I suppose I America could... can be role model. But and I mean, isn't that isn't that a isn't that more like just a specific policy you know like we don't we can't be finland i guess that's what i'm what i'm getting to although there's another funny story a friend of mine uh, (laughs) brad was talking to some finnish scientist or something and they were talking about um taxes you know and and the the guy from finland was saying yeah you know taxes are not that bad you know uh, people complain about taxes and brad was like well what is it like and he's like look the finnish guy says something like look You'll never pay more than eighty percent of your income. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, if we were willing, if Canadians were willing to do that, then. Well, yeah, it's all in how you define standard of living, right? Yeah. If your yeah. only criteria is disposable income, um, freedom. Hey. <laughs> it's all about freedom. Uh, okay, so um, wait. So, did you have any concluding thoughts about this role model question? I I think in a couple of senses we we are or could be. I think the devolution aspect is is interesting, especially. But isn't aren't those just conditions in that specific time that no. are not imi- imitatable? No, that's what I would say. Think no? of de- think of decolonization. Yeah. Do you have to hang on till the last minute until you have a war? like Portugal and Angola or... But know. they knew, the British knew they could get what they wanted from uh, Canada uh, yes. without, right? So yeah. like if if it was an indigenous, imagine like, imagine if in 1870, it was like an across a Canada indigenous uh, uprising and then Canada was going to be a, a indigenous country. Then I'm sure the British would have fought tooth and nail. I don't think they would have done a devolution you know it was like within their racialist framework of like these this is still going to be an anglo-saxon country it's still going to be under you know the control of the superior race blah 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 we can let them go it's just it's just when it doesn't work out for for the reasons that canada is different in the in british eyes than their other colonies then you can't really blame the colonies you know it's it's a different really it's a different kind of relationship between the yeah no, and, and, and i'm not claiming that there's somebody who deserves credit for the way Canada yeah. turned out yeah. most of it is accident and uh right you know the course of events that nobody planned but the end yeah. result is a country that 
um, for all right, like the bilingualism. It's not. It's not like we deserve a gold medal as uh, a country, <laughs> country of the year <laughs> <laughs> or country of the century, whatever Laurier said. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm still. I'm still